Alright everyone, episode 114 is about to start with Eric Helms, and Eric was just plain amazing. I love speaking to people who take the time to research nutrition and anything related to fitness and health and take that information and is able to you know, put it into words that general population can understand. And we talked about a lot of stuff, everything from, you know, pre and post body build, uh, bodybuilding, uh, show prep. By the way, I always do these intros one take, so I always hope I don't mess this shit up. Uh, and we also talk about some Facebook questions about women training their power lifts, like their bench, deadlift, and squat. And also talk about some personal stuff in his life and what he's working on and how he manages to do all the things he does in such a short amount of time. So without further ado, here is Eric Helms. Uh, Hello boys and girls, welcome back to another episode of Cut the Shit, Get Fit. I'm your host Rafael Matuszewski and joining me today is Eric Helms. Say hello. Hello. Perfect. So I always like to start the show by asking my guests what he got planned for the weekend. What do I have planned for the weekend? Well, um, I'm going to lift some weights. That's that's actually at the forefront of my plans because I just got back from Mexico. I was there for a destination wedding. Nice. Not mine. <laughs> uh, and uh, it, was, it was amazing. It was great. But at the same time, you know, being a, a psychotic bodybuilder like myself, it takes you away from your normal environment of being able to train regularly, eat the way you want, etc. So I'm actually just looking forward to getting back in the routine of things. So very non-exciting weekend for me. Nice. So who got married? Good friend of mine, uh, now Dr. Scott Brown. He got his PhD uh, at AUT. A very, very close friend of mine and his lovely wife now, Erin Brown. Awesome. There so you go. Shout, shout out to Dr. and Mrs. Brown. There you go. Uh, so also for the audience who don't know who you are, can you tell them who you are, what you do, and how did you get into this industry in the first place? For sure. So as you said, my name's Eric. Uh, I'm essentially a guy who loves lifting things, uh, heavy and light things, both. I don't discriminate. And um, I started lifting weights back in 2004 uh, as an outlet in my life as I was going through a rough patch and just felt, found that I really fell in love with it. Um, and I fell in love with the experience. I fell in love with the community. I fell in love with the science behind it. And I made it my profession. I kind of went all in. I uh, started personal training in 2005 and then started competing in uh, drug-free sport in 2006 and 2007. I started, did my first powerlifting meet and my first natural bodybuilding show, respectively. Been doing that since. Um, then in 2009, I hooked up with a group of like-minded uh, natural lifters, and we started what we call 3D Muscle Journey, which was essentially our, our effort to create a sense of community, uh, appreciation, and a uh, platform for evidence-based information for, for the drug-free lifting community. And that's been growing since. In around 2012, I actually was able to quit my day job and stopped being a one-on-one personal trainer, stopped teaching at a personal trainer college, and uh, was able to pursue being a quote-unquote science communicator for this community and coaching people online as my primary vocation. Uh, and the, all the while, I have been doing my thing educationally because I really love the science of it. So I just recently completed my uh, doctorate in strength and conditioning uh, here in New Zealand at Auckland University of Technology, where I came to do my graduate work uh, just last year. And uh, previously did a couple of master's degrees, one focused on exercise science, one focused on sports nutrition. So I nerd out as, as much as I grow out, is I guess nice. what I'm saying. 
Awesome. So, so how do you find the time to do all of that, like PhD, your master's, and also run your company? Like, how, how do you even do like time management? Uh, I basically know that I'm going to die of a stroke in my 40s. So that's, <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> no, I, I that, that's a great question. And it's one that I always, I, I, the assumption that because I'm successful at all of them, which I would say I'm more or less am, which I'm very happy about and very fortunate, I work very hard to do, it doesn't always mean that it looks pretty, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I have strategies that have allowed me to be successful, and I think a lot of times people measure how well does someone manage their time as in can they actually get it done. Um, but sometimes you have to think about can you get it done and at what cost? And I would say there have been times in my life where I've been much more stressed than I want to be and not as happy as I, as I should be doing something I love because I probably took too much on. So the first thing I would say is maybe don't try to emulate what I'm doing and, and do everything all the time at the same time uh, and spread it out more. But I find that I work best being pretty stimulated uh, and keeping a few balls in the air that I'm juggling. Um, but I am bad at knowing what that line is where I start to do too much, but I'm getting better at it. Uh, and I think the biggest thing is not just time management. It's, it's more so energy and, and emotional management, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. You have to be incredibly busy to actually not physically have the hours in a day to get what you need done. What more often happens is that you're so drained uh, that you don't have the energy to utilize the time you have effectively to get what you need done. So, for example, if I want to write the second edition to the Muscle and Strength Pyramids, which that's the plan this year, that's going to take a fair amount of creative energy on me to be in the right state to do that. Um, what often happens is if I haven't you know, set up my life the right way or if my stress levels are too high, I might sit down to do that and go, there's no way I'm doing that. Well, I'm going to answer emails instead and take care of something else. So one of the, the best strategies I've found for time management, which is really energy management, is setting setting different uh, tasks, uh, different emotional stress levels attached to them. So for example, if I have to do creative work, I know that I need to be in a good space creatively. And if I'm not, I don't even try anymore. I don't be like, no, I've got to write no matter what, just put your head down and do it. I go, no, 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 I'm gonna do something that doesn't take the same level of effort uh, or a different type of effort. So I, I guess you could say I like periodize my work in a manner that when I'm burned out, I do busy work. And when I'm fresh, I make sure I, I focus on the more creative work. And I'm fortunate enough that I can set my own schedule for the most, for the most part. Yeah. So that, that allows me to do that. Do you have like a certain time in the day where you're the most creative? Because I know like for me personally, like if I wake up first thing in the morning, have some coffee and I'm like, okay, I can like start writing a blog post or something that works really well for me. Like, is it the same for you or do you have a different time during the day where you're creative compared to other times in the day? Yeah, it's a great question. I find that I'm a little bit slow to start. Mm-hmm. So I don't normally throw myself into something immediately because uh, I find I just get intimidated by thinking about how much I have to do for the day. Yeah. So normally I give myself easy wins first thing in the morning. And I don't think that works well for everyone, but I have found that works well for me. Like um, taking care of social media engagement first thing in the morning, mm-hmm. you know, making sure that I make my my one my one informative Instagram post for the day, you know, that I try to do daily um, or, you know, looking at things that I've been tagged in on Facebook, which can sometimes be a landmine if it's something like (laughs) really engaging. So you have to be careful. You have to decide whether or not it's worth it. But um, so, yeah, to answer your question, I might be creative and useful in the morning, but I'm too 
just intimidated by the workload I have to jump into something like that. So the first thing I do is I give myself some easy wins and I try to build momentum. So I normally spend the morning uh, dealing with emails, social media engagement, and just the few busy tasks that are easy to do successfully and that can be done quickly without too much of attention. And then I find I hit a flow state have lunch and after lunch that's when I can really produce some good quality work. Okay, sounds good. Um, so I kind of wanted to go back to like your little intro and you said back in mm. 2004 you had like a rough patch. Did you go through like a bad breakup and you're like now I'm just going to lift heavy shit or what what was that <laughs> going on? What was go- what was going on there? It wasn't a breakup. It was I was it was in the military and I was uh, isolated from who at the time was my significant other and something relatively tragic happened to them. Okay. Uh, and I was very angry and I was unable to do anything. I felt powerless. So I think for, for me, it was a way of having something to focus on and to progress with and to uh, express myself in many ways. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and out of respect to, to her, I don't want to get into the, the details sure. of what happened. Sure. Someone could probably track that back if they looked at my Facebook or whatever. But um, to keep it more about me, Someone very close to me who I cared for a lot uh, experienced something that made me very angry and, and unhappy with the world. Yeah. And I needed some kind of outlet to, to, to do that because I couldn't make the world the way I wanted it to be. Yeah. So uh, it started relatively borderline masochistically, like just this needs to be hard and painful mm-hmm. and uh, cathartic, I guess, if you could say. But um, I really found that it was it was useful in that way and that it allowed me to express myself and and I grew to have a much more, I'd say, healthy relationship with lifting weights and found that, wow, that really helped me, you know, yeah. and it made me want to pay it forward. Hence, I got into personal training. Yeah, that's, that's why I like stories like this, because, you know, you found going to the gym was your, basically like cheap therapy almost. And mm. when I train my clients, I'm like, you just need to like latch on to this thing because all the stress in your life, that's whatever's going on. You're going to have like at least an hour where you're not thinking about it. And that's why I try to like convey to my clients, I'm like, come on, you just got to jump on this train and everything will kind of like kind of get a little bit easier for you. And, you know, personally for me, it's like, you know, everyone talks about, oh, meditation is like the biggest thing. Like, it's good for you. It's good for you. But I literally tried meditating for 30 days straight. I'm like, this is stupid. This is not working for me. But when I work out, my mind is like completely off from everything else. And I'm like, that's my meditation. And I think it could work really, really well for a lot of people in the world if they just go lift something up off the ground. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a it's a reprieve, but a focused reprieve that is productive and healthy physically and mentally. And I think, you know, I used to tell, because, you know, as a personal trainer, you end up being someone's confidant as much as you are yeah. their, their, their coach, you know. And um, it's counterintuitive, but most people, they would go through a really rough patch and they'd go, you know, Eric, I want to, I need to take some time off training. I got other things to focus on in my life. I'm going through a really hard patch. And I go, you know, you don't have to meet up with me, but I would really, 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 really recommend that's the one thing you do hold on to. Because mm-hmm. if your life becomes this tumultuous storm, this can be your anchor. You know, you can know that at this time on these days, I can do this. And then you can go back to, to, to diving into uh, the, the pain or the stress that you have right now. But when you eliminate your, 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 your stress relief, your stress management tool, or one of your stress management tools, when you're the most stressed because you don't feel like you have time to allocate to it, mm-hmm. it ends up being compounding the problem for most people. Yeah. That's for sure. So what clicked into your head that, you know, you know, you're going to the gym and you're like, okay, I want to become a trainer. Like what was going through your life where you're like, hey, this is going to be my career and I'm just going to run with it 100%. 
That's a great question. So I was in the Air Force for an enlistment. I was there for four years, and I was doing a job that was really not stimulating. Um, however, the Air Force is, the military service in general, if you're not in a combat role, is incredibly safe. Uh, when I, I, don't, I don't mean physically safe. I mean safe as far as uh, safety in your career. You get paid on the 1st and 15th, no matter what. It's almost impossible to get fired. You have to really do some ridiculous stuff. Uh, and when you're like 18, 19, 20, um, having a steady paycheck, uh, completely covered medical uh, issues and um, rules, responsibilities, a place to live, everything covered, um, and, and, and purpose, it's very easy to stay there. And a lot of people stay there even if they're not that happy, because they, they go, look, I can retire after 20 years. I joined at 18. I can retire at 38 and have a steady paycheck the rest of my life and, and even start a second career if I want. Um, and while that's very appealing, and I think it's a great way to go, uh, and you definitely can make it work, and I would never discourage someone from, from that path, for me, I was truly not happy in my career, and it felt like I was settling in life, and I hadn't found what, what felt like something I was good at. Um, so when I started lifting weights and I started to really enjoy it and I found that um, I was understanding it well and that I was able to give feedback to others like on the online forums back in like yeah. 2005 on com. That's kind of where I started um, and just saw there was a cool social hierarchy and structure there. Like, you know, the people have been in the game a long time, passed down their, their sage wisdom and the iron game to other people. I liked that and I gravitated towards it and it gave me... Uh, you know, a social structure to get approval from my peers and a community to be recognized within and a purpose and a way to help other people to actually make positive changes in their lives. So it came at the right time and that I was about to step away from something very safe and and go, well, I don't know what I'm going to do, you know. So I was going to do the same work that I was doing in the Air Force as a, as a government contractor. Um, and that fell through, fortunately. And I was able to secure basically a, like a gym staff job, the local YMCA, and um, just said, you know what, I, I've done something that I don't like that is lucrative and safe. I'm going to try doing only what I want to do and just make it work and just go all chips in. So, you know, you only have one life to live. So um, that became a life philosophy for me, and it has worked pretty damn well. Is I'm just going to do what I want to do and give it my all, period you know, without, without much compromise there. Um, certainly delayed gratification. Yes. You know, I didn't really want to take sport economics, you know, in my undergrad, that wasn't exactly as exciting as exercise physiology for me, but I knew that it was going to get me towards my, to finish my degree. So I think everything was in service of the vision I had for myself and where I wanted to go. So even when I was doing things I didn't quote unquote like to do in the moment, I knew that it was for a purpose that I was highly motivated and passionate and excited about. Nice. Okay. And then what kind of got you into the bodybuilding, like, world? Because I know, like, when I first started, I was working at a big box gym, and that's, like, what everybody did, but it never mm. appealed to me. So I'm kind of curious, like, what made you look at that, and you're like, that's for me. I really want to go compete one day and be super shredded and muscular for everyone to watch. Right, yeah, it, it was interesting. You know, I... Um... I started out just wanting to get bigger and stronger mm -hmm. and to be, uh, to just to kind of pursue those more generally. And I ran track in high school. I did martial arts as a kid and I didn't like the way those felt I and mean, it's were enjoyable to me. And, um, the lifting weights was fun. I think that was, that was a key piece. And 
I, I like the way it felt. And the funny thing is I'd even tried it in a different emotional state just in high school. I'd lift weights for sports and stuff like that, mm-hmm. and I hated it. I was like, this is dumb. I'm never going to do this. But I think being in the emotional state I was in at the time of my life and just finding that it's an outlet for continual progression that's endless, which I guess all sports are, you know. But I think the fact that it was an individual sport, it wasn't track, which which had uh, like just I burned down on in high school. Um, it really fit the mold of what I needed at that time. And then I I found that something in me wants to push to see the, the, what's the best I can be. You know, once I got past my like kind of lazy, don't try hard or you'll find out that you're actually not good kind of mentality that I think I had as a teenager and I became more of an adult, then I was like, you know what? I just want to put my all into what I'm doing. So, well, hell, let, let's find some kind of competitive outlet for this. And there's not, at the time, in 2000, you know, five or six when I first started considering competing, there were only a few outlets for, for competitive lifting of weights. There was powerlifting, bodybuilding, and then there was weightlifting, which just seemed impossibly hard. And like, where do I get, you know, a coach for this? Is, is there even a gym for that? I've seen in the Olympics, but I'm not even flexible enough to do that. Yeah. So it's basically the options were, were powerlifting and bodybuilding. You know, World's Strongest Man was just becoming kind of slight awareness and CrossFit wasn't a thing yet. Mm-hmm. So... Um, so I decided that I wanted to try my hand at a powerlifting meet. We put on a, uh, non-affiliated push pull meet at the YMCA I was in. I helped to, a little bit to organize it, but mainly I wanted to stay hands off so I could compete and loved it. Absolutely loved it. And, um, was also considering, you know, bodybuilding as I was trying to learn more about the nutrition side of it and what I'd have to do to diet down. And so it seemed like a natural evolution from just being like, oh, he's a strong guy in the gym who's got a pretty good physique, you know, to actually have a why find a, an outlet to motivate myself to take this as far as I can. Okay. So how many, how many years did you end up like competing in bodybuilding? Like how many shows did you end up doing? So I'm still going to keep competing. I just okay. took some time off to, to, to do my PhD, but I did two shows in 2007. I did uh, five shows in 2009 and I did two, two shows in 2011. And in 2011 was right when I, um, got accepted into like AUT and end of that year. And I was like, you know what, I'm just going to hold steady because this is going to be hard and dieting and starving and being, you know, 5% body fat isn't conducive to getting doctorates. <laughs> so I figured I would just wait until I finished my PhD before I got back on stage. Fair enough. So for someone who's like considering going into their first bodybuilding show, like what advice would you give them to, you know, kind of bulletproof their success? Like what did you find over the years competing that hey this didn't really work for me i shouldn't have eaten that or i shouldn't have done this or whatever like any advice would probably be really good (laughs) yeah i think honestly it's a lot of big picture stuff and and some some key points are that um it takes a lot of time to get into shape and you probably have more body fat than you think you do because the standard for what lean is in bodybuilding is like losing another 15 pounds when you think someone's shredded you know compared to like a someone who looks good on, on the cover of a magazine, but that's not a bodybuilding magazine. So give yourself plenty of time. Uh, for most people, we're looking at five to seven months, uh, not the, t- the traditional two to three months. Um, and then give yourself a little more time than that, just in case things go poorly or life throws a curveball or the show gets canceled or moved up or moved, moved away. So give yourself plenty of time. Um, next thing I would really advise to a first timer is to get a coach, someone who has competed, has trained others who have competed and who cares about not just the competitive success and the before and after pictures, but also the people as individuals who they're working with, who looks to safeguard their career 
and who looks to safeguard their health. Um, because at its core, bodybuilding can be enhancing to your life or it can really make things worse. You know, I've seen people develop unhealthy relationships with their body and food that they didn't have until they got into bodybuilding because they took, uh, I would say, an unhealthy approach to the sport. Um, so, you know, it's important to know that the, the roots of bodybuilding came from not just being as shredded and big as you possibly can, but being able to use your body to do incredible things, being healthy and being seen as like a, a physical specimen, you know, someone who uh, is, tries to take their body just as far as they can, their, their, their mind and their spirit. You know, it was, it was very holistic starting. Mm -hmm. And I think now in modern day, we've lost that a little bit and, um, you know, they're divorced from one another. But I think while from a scientific perspective, how do I get as big as lean as possible? Yeah, you just want to focus on specificity. But from a human being enjoying life and having longevity in the sport and being happy, you definitely want to take a holistic approach and think about not just the isolated event of me competing, but what's going to happen afterwards. So a big thing that, that I always work on with athletes is making sure you have a plan afterwards. How are you going to get back to regular life? Because at the end of a diet, you're going to be starving. You're going to be fatigued. Uh, you're going to have dysregulated hormones. Uh, you're going to be sleeping poorly. Um, you're going to be primarily thinking about food and wishing you could eat more all the time, even when you should be full. So how are you going to deal with that? How are you going to actually recover from that? Um, so, you know, 3D Muscle Journey, a lot of the times, we'll keep our clients on for a couple months after the show and, and help them make that transition. Mm -hmm. The transitions are the hardest part of bodybuilding. Um, being able to move back towards a state of more balanced mental health into a hyper-focused state of I've got to diet down and push myself way past my comfort zone to compete and then go back to it again is difficult. Uh, and a lot of people struggle with that aspect of it. They'll do a few shows, a few seasons, find they got messed up by bodybuilding, and then they stay away from the sport. And I think that can be avoided with a, a more holistic approach where you're taking longer to diet, you have a concerted recovery period afterwards, uh, you're not crash dieting, and you are actually thinking about the, the mental and physical and emotional side of it equally. Okay, fair enough. Well, the one thing I was going to ask you is, like, what did you do to kind of fight off the cravings when you were really close to stepping on stage? Because I find with just like general fat loss people looking to lose like 20 pounds and they would be happy, they deal with so many different cravings. And I can only imagine, you know, someone competing at a high level when they get a craving, like what, what did you do to kind of bypass that hard part of like the journey? Well, you know, the funny thing is you don't get to bypass it. Period. You know, the, uh, the, the, the difference between dieting to lose body fat and dieting to get on stage is that you can do things like if, if you're overweight and you want to get to a healthy body fat, there's a lot of ways you can manage that. You can take as long as you need, you know, you can take two, two, two week diet breaks after every two weeks of dieting, you know, you can uh, take the weekends off. You can have two days where you're dieting. It's, it's you're really only limited by what is practical with your life and what can you adhere to in the long run and if you have the right mindset of like look I'm, I'm 30 and I want to be healthy for as much of my life as possible who cares if it takes two years instead of six months for me to get to the right body fat level because if I take six months crush myself and then balloon back to even heavier than I started now I've just wasted a bunch of time and I'm less motivated and I'm more primed psychologically to think I'm going to fail mm -hmm. so 
in general population, fat loss is a very different animal when it comes to the psychology than it is for a bodybuilder who's prepping. Uh, while the physiology is the same, just more extreme for a bodybuilder versus someone, the way you're, you mentally set it up is, is very different. You know, like um, following your nutrition plan for a bodybuilder is like going to practice for a baseball player, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, you just have to do it, and you you won't get on stage shredded if 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 you, if you don't. So, in many ways, there are these like hard lines that you that you draw. Like I'm simply not going to, to to, to like my my cravings are going to be there. I have to accept them, and that's pretty much it. Um, you can do a lot of things to make them as easy as possible, but it never gets easy. So, for example, um, not following traditional largely mythical-based rules about food. Like, I can only eat these six foods that are, quote-unquote, good for fat loss mm-hmm. or, or, or muscle gain. Giving yourself more freedom. So having a more flexible approach to what foods you include in your diet, but at the same time, not taking it so far that you're going to go, right, I have just, if it fits your macros and calories, and I'll eat whatever foods I want, you also have to think about, how do I want to budget my calories? Do I really want to blow my entire carbon take for the day on fat-free frozen yogurt that's just going to make me more hungry, you know, in an hour, right? So maybe I want to have, you know, 80% of my nutrition consisting of single-item whole food ingredients, you know, lean meats, fruits, vegetables, uh, nuts, things like that. It looks a little more kind of quote-unquote traditional or bro, but there's a reason for that. It's high in fiber. It's um, volumetrics are, are playing to your advantage. You're having a high actual mechanical amount of satiety in your stomach. There's a high food volume for a low amount of calories. Um, you know, you have micronutrient-dense diet, so you're not going to be feeling any deficiency, which might drive hunger. There's a lot of things in there that uh, you need to think about. So you want to have the flexibility and the ability to maybe work in some fat-free frozen yogurt, but you don't want to let it dominate your diet so that your food is actually making you hungrier than you would have been had you made more, uh, let's say, balanced choices with your diet. Mm-hmm. So that's one. Um, another thing is just to simply diet slower. You know, try to lose 0.5 to 1% of your body weight per week on average, maybe closer to 0.5%, especially towards the end, versus trying to lose as fast as you can by doing the, the, the hardest diet you can follow. Because, you know, getting ready in, in eight weeks is going to absolutely wreck you compared to getting ready in 24 weeks, despite what you'd think, you know. Um, the, the, the kind of the, the, slow, the slower approach allows you to maintain more muscle, more sanity, more training uh, effectiveness. Uh, and just allows more life energy and happiness in general. Um, and in the end, at the end of that diet, you're going to have to get on stage. And if you brutalized yourself to get there, you're not going to look like a bodybuilder at the end. You're going to look like someone who starved across the finish line. So uh, there's mental and physical reasons why taking a, a longer, slower approach to prep is ideal. Um, also having a more balanced macronutrient approach. So like traditional, traditional bodybuilders, they might be telling you to have like two grams per pound of protein. And this greatly limits the amount of carbohydrates and fat you can have. Probably something closer to more like half that, like a gram per pound of protein, allows a lot more diet flexibility while still giving you the satiety that protein provides and the adequate amount to maintain muscle mass. Okay. So, I mean, there's, there's a litany of things I could go over which would be, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, the appropriate way to diet. But the, the big picture ones are make sure that you have flexibility but also intelligent foods, uh, meal frequency, macronutrient breakdown, and food source selection, uh, which will help you to stick to the diet and not feel as hungry when you're following it. Okay. Um, So the other thing you mentioned was hormones, and I'm kind of curious about this because I've had some clients in the past who are female that competed when they were in their 20s and now they're in their 40s and now they're dealing with 
a lot of hormone issues. And I'm kind of curious if that's connected at all and if you've seen that on the research side at all. And I'm kind of just curious for myself. Sure. It depends on how they competed. Like mm-hmm. if they competed in uh, an enhanced bodybuilding, so they were using, you know, thyroid or anabolic steroids, uh, all of those things can have lasting effects from um, I'm obviously not an endocrinologist and I'm, I'm a drug free bodybuilder, so I don't work with folks in this area. But from everyone I've talked to mm-hmm. uh, who, ha- who, who has that skill set and has that knowledge, the longer and the more you take of something, the more likely it is to have lasting effects. So indeed, if you were taking a lot of anabolic steroids, uh, if you were taking uh, thyroid drugs to to keep energy output up to help you get lean, uh, you can have low thyroid and need to be on HRT for the rest of your life uh, if if you took it far enough or if you have the genetic predisposition towards that. Um, But independent of that, um, even if you're drug-free, we have seen that, so for example, uh, people who compete as as teenagers and children in weight class restricted sport and who diet a lot typically are of smaller stature and typically have lower energy expenditures later in life. So if you spent a large part of your life in a in a chronically dieted state, um, or if you were uh, restricted and malnourished at certain points in your life or for long periods, that can have lasting effects as well. Um, and and some of that will be hormonally mediated. But I think the best way to think about hormones is that they are they're the way things happen. They're like sometimes people talk, about, I need to alter my hormones. And that's only the case if they are outside of normal ranges and, and dysregulated. Um, and, and in that case, you definitely want to have someone see an endocrinologist and get it checked out. Um, most of the time when someone says, oh, I think I really can't lose weight no matter what I do. I think it's my thyroid. It's probably not. It's probably something else. There's a lot of reasons and a lot of things stacked against you to make it hard to lose weight in our modern society. Um, but you can always get your levels checked, and if that is an issue, you can get it corrected. But most of the time, uh, unfortunately, it's not as simple as take this medication, fix this value, and all of a sudden weight loss will be easy. Yeah, um, yeah like uh, the whole thyroid things, I think I had uh, the Spencer Nadalski on my show, and I asked him mm. like what he, what he thinks about that, and it's almost like a blanket statement when someone's kind of frustrated that they're not losing fat. They're like, oh, it's probably my thyroid, and they get their thyroid tested, and it's never the issue it's always something else but yeah. it's, it's interesting like how our in- industry is where you know certain things pop up always and then the general public are like oh it's my thyroid oh it's adrenal fatigue that's what's my whole issue is and not everything else i'm doing in my life absolutely well and we we, we crave simple answers yeah. you know and I, I do believe that things should be made as simple as they can be but no simpler um but i think most people they want they want a silver bullet. They they want it to be simple because that's the way our brains like to think. You know, it's it's an easier problem to manage. You know, and um, also if it's something you can you can fix in a binary fashion, do this and X and then Y happens. Great. Uh, you don't have to completely change your lifestyle. But the issue is is the lifestyle and in, in in the general population. We have higher food availability with higher calories at a lower cost and less need to move to get it. So we're overweight. You know, um, and the only way to modify that is to, to significantly change the way you interact with your environment, because the environment isn't going to change. If anything, it's just going to get worse. Um, so yeah, I, I totally understand why people do that, and I don't think we should necessarily point the finger at people and be like, "Oh, you lazy people that want it to be your thyroid." Yeah. It's like, yeah, people people are no more lazy today than they than they were in 1970. It's just so much 
easier for your steady state normal interaction with your environment to result in being overweight. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I, I agree. That is a, a, an unfortunate kind of rabbit hole people go down that is yeah. just really a red herring. Uh, the other thing I wanted to bring up was like for those people who are competing, they finish their show and now they're doing that diet to transition back to normal life. What is kind of, in your opinion, like the crucial step that everyone needs to do? Because I've seen it when I worked at big box gyms, you know, people would do the show and then they kind of disappear from the gym for like two weeks and then come back 40 pounds heavier than they were when they first started. And I'm just kind of curious, like, what do you recommend to your clients when they're coming off a show and what they should be doing? Great question. And the, the pendulum has swung all over the place on this one. So kind of the traditional things, exactly what you said. You know, you take a week off from training, you eat your face off, you get depressed. And then once you get that out of your system, you come back to the gym. And unfortunately for some people, that can result in way more weight gain than they, they expected. My first show in 2000, or my first season, I should say, in 2007, I put on nearly 50 pounds in three months. Oh, man. So I lost 30 pounds to get on stage, and I was 20 pounds heavier than that just three months after my show. I was depressed, and I had really no control over it. Um, the, so now that the pendulum swings all the way away from that, and now you'll hear people talking about reverse dieting in the uh, physique community. And, and now that doesn't mean anything in and of itself, but it evokes different thoughts in different people. And... The most extreme and I would say harmful side of that is where you actually stay in a deficit after your show is over and just slowly titrate in food. We're talking adding in 5 to 15 grams of carbohydrate and 1 to 5 grams of fat per week until you're out of a deficit, which depending on how large your calorie deficit was, that might mean 6 to 12 weeks of still being in a calorie deficit after you're done dieting. And that's completely unnecessary and will actually make the problem worse because now you've removed the one motivating factor which allowed you to stick to this extreme diet of getting on stage and knowing that there's going to be nine people who are going to look at you and and, and judge you and your placing and you have all this you know competitor-driven motivation wrapped up into following this diet so you can succeed. That's gone. Now you've got at least one, maybe two seasons before you get back on stage. So it's so much easier to rationalize not following this plan. And then when you don't follow the plan, now you failed, and you can't imagine, why can't I do what I was able to do no problem two months ago? So you start to feel this loss of identity as a bodybuilder, as someone who works hard, because that's what you put up on a pedestal. In the bodybuilding community, your ability to work hard, grind through pain, and push yourself past your limits, that is your, your, that's your, your I'm a bodybuilder cart. You have that. You bring it out and you go, I know how to work hard and how to push myself. That's, that's the, our value in our community. That's how we measure our worth. So when you find that you can no longer adhere to it, and I'm telling you, 90% of people cannot follow uh, the, the, the more extreme version of the reverse diet. You feel like a failure. And you end up having these, these binge purge kind of relationships with food where you'll, you'll follow the reverse diet for a day, but it's still just you dieting without a purpose. You rationalize yourself out of it. You have a binge eating episode. You hate yourself. You restrict yourself even harder the next day and on and on and on. And it, at a certain point could actually become what we would classify as bulimia, probably not through actually throwing up, but from that uh, that cycle. Uh, and that's just as if not more harmful than just gaining a, a ton of weight and being fat and unhappy with yourself and, and needing to diet then only three months after you just spend a six-month period dieting. So both are, are, are bad. Yeah. Um, and, but both have something right. So on the traditional side of it, the thing to do after you've just dieted yourself down to 5% body fat as a man or 10% body fat as a woman is to gain body fat. 
there's no reason to have veins in your abs except for getting on stage. It's not an ideal place for you to gain muscle. It's counterintuitive to the goal of bodybuilding. So your off-season shouldn't have you being shredded. So you do need to put on body fat. You need to put on body fat so you can get healthy again and then put on muscle. You need to put on body fat so you can actually have an energy expenditure that is appropriate for your size so you can eat and so you can actually have satiety signals again so you can be sane and have a healthy relationship with yourself, your body, your friends, your family, and your food. But at the same time, you don't want to put on body fat so fast uh, that it's unhealthy uh, and that you hate the way you look in the mirror and that you feel like you've really blown it and that you're now going to have to push back your next show two seasons or spend most of your off-season dieting it off. So that's the element that they have right in, in the traditional approach. And the element that's right in the reverse diet approach is that you do want to increase your food and you do want to have some level of of moderation there so that you don't have that traditional 40 pound gain in two weeks like you mentioned. So what we recommend is what we call the recovery diet. That focuses more on the active process of recovering. And we try to have someone gain between say roughly five to 10% of their of their body weight uh, or get, get rather five to 10% over their stage weight. So if you competed at let's say 160 pounds, Within four to six weeks, you should be, let's say four to eight weeks, you should be five to 10% heavier. So that might mean you're 168, or that might mean you're 176, somewhere in that range. That's a pretty broad range, but it does prevent the excess weight gain uh, of getting really fat and really hating yourself. And it also allows you to actually recover and put that body fat back on and to get a healthy mentality. Um, we typically cut cardio down drastically, um, but we stay in the gym, keep lifting weights, because you're going to have... Uh, and that's what we should be focused on. Instead of looking at yourself every day to see, am I getting leaner? Am I peaking? Am I ready for the show? It is, all right, is all this food doing something and allowing me to lift uh, weights more progressively? And am I able to actually make progress? Am I starting to rebuild any lost muscle tissue and move successfully into my next off season? So it's taking the focus less off aesthetics and more on performance, which is one of the reasons a lot of our athletes also can compete in powerlifting. Mm -hmm. It's a useful diversion of attention towards something that is still in line with the goal of an off-season bodybuilder. And it has a weight class restriction, so you can't take it too crazy far. Um, so it's kind of that middle-of-the-road approach and a different mentality and focus of the goal is to recover here. I'm not trying to stay as lean as possible while eating as much food as possible. No, the goal is to get yourself healthy as soon as possible so we can start making gains so you'll succeed in next season and healthy in all ways, emotionally, mentally, and physically. Yeah. I like that idea that you guys kind of transition into powerlifting as a goal because now you're taking the mind off from how shredded can I get to like how strong should I get and now I need to eat a little bit more to be able to add another five pounds to my deadlift and so on and so on. I just, I just like that approach. It's, that's about it. <laughs> Well, thank you. I'm glad. Yeah. I mean, if you think it's so easy for bodybuilding to become unhealthy because mm -hmm. you are the way you look is we treat it like a sport as bodybuilders, but we're still humans, you know, yeah. um, just like a power lifter who is stronger in the 120 plus kg class as they are in the 105 kg class. A lot of times they're going to prefer the way they look in the 105 kg class more just because they are carrying less body fat, even though they're more of a tank and more competitive in the 120s. It's just a random example. So they're going to be like, yeah, I should get up to 120, but I just don't like the way I look. I'm unhappy, you know, and so you have to weigh that up. And in bodybuilding, they're completely the same. You know, you, you've got your, you're being judged on your appearance, uh, just like you are in society every day, unfortunately, but competitively. So you really have to maintain this healthy separation between your competitive physique and your self-worth 
and the way you see yourself in society in general. So I always try to tell my athletes, look at getting striated glutes or veins in your abs and posing perfectly the same way a pitcher looks at trying to throw a 90-mile-per-hour fastball. It is a performance achievement. And you've got to really separate yourself and your self-worth from how successful you are as an athlete and how you look, or bodybuilding can become really dark. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. And, 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 that, and that's one way to do it is by focusing on performance when, when you can. When, yeah. when you... Because you need to focus on the way you look when you're when you're getting on stage, but focusing on performance is the pathway to improving your physique in the off season. Fair enough. Uh, so I wanted to get into a Instagram question I got from Sumi, and she asks, "Why does oh hang on, I click something? Okay, why does he think it takes females longer to express their true uh, one rep max on power lifts, and how can us everyday trainers do a better job at spreading the message that is?" Uh, that there's no quick fix, that goals often take twice as long as, uh, as long to attain, and when the rest of diet, when the rest of the diet industry pushes endless quick fix BS on consumers. <laughs> it's a two-part question. So yeah. The first one, um, I'm not actually convinced it takes longer for a a female to reach their true one RM. Um, there's a lot of other variables that might go into that. Like if you have a, a different training history uh, or if you have really disadvantageous, disadvantageous levers to a certain lift, mm -hmm. then you're going to have to really learn how to grind to get through that. But I would say on the whole, um, being able to express a true 1RM tends to, to level out between males and females once they have a certain level of training experience. Um, now, yeah, I mean... There are differences between men and women, and like if you look at some research, it would show that women can do more repetitions at a given percentage of 1RM, yeah. um, and that is probably what she's getting at because their 1RM is not their true 1RM. Mm -hmm. uh, now, this could be because the studies in which this was done, uh, the men were actually more highly trained, so they were actually able to actualize more of their strength, so then at a lower percentage, uh, they, were, they were able to do a, a fewer number of reps. Uh, or this could be related to, um, you know, muscular properties. So there is some research showing that uh, women are able to attain good stretch reflex in the legs, but not so much in the upper body, while men can. Mm -hmm. So maybe their, their bench press doesn't have the same kind of ceiling or, or, or strength curve, as you would say. Um, but I, I do think the vast majority of research shows that once you have a fairly high training age with heavy weights, a lot of those differences get quite muted to the point where I'm not comfortable saying that that is a characteristic, like across all men and women, enough to generalize. Okay. Um, now, to answer your other question about how do you get across the message uh, that there is not a quick fix, <laughs> man, that's a tough one. Yes. You know, because people want there to be a quick fix, and I think. I think being honest and not using clickbait and the and, and marketing things, uh, like I think there's there's this trend towards you know what marketing is really important and we have to use marketing strategies that maybe we're not too comfortable with to get across the right information, and I think that's a tough question because if you're attracting people with clickbaity titles and the thing that will drive the most attention, you also might be setting them up with uh, with bad expectations, you know? So you can use all the marketing strategies. I think in the end, you have to be just completely brutally honest about what, what is a realistic, realistic expectation from a supplement, nutrition plan, a diet plan, or whatever. 
Um, and especially for the general population, um, we need to be honest about the causes and the solutions. So as I was talking about before, it is our relationship with our food environment and our required activity to, to be alive in the modern world and be healthy. And by healthy, I guess I mean like not to be impoverished, um, not like healthy, like not overweight, because obviously that, those aren't the same. So we need to be honest with people that it's very easy to be unfit and unhealthy in our modern world because things are easier to access in the Western world. They cost less. Uh, you don't even have to commute to work anymore. You can telecommute. So we, we're moving less and we're eating more, and it's easy to do that. So if we understand that that's the problem, not carbs, not fat, not sugar, not any one of these silver bullet things, that leads you logically to the conclusion that, okay, then I need an environmental and, and, and mental change. I need a, a lifestyle change. So I think the only thing we can we can do is is constantly draw attention to the fact that it is our lifestyles that are the problem, not any single aspect of them, and that therefore the only change has to be something to our life, which doesn't have a time component. It's your entire time that you that you're going to be alive. Yeah. Um, so that's not a sexy message, but I think so long as there is unity in that message, and I think people actually know that's true, they just don't want it to be. Yeah. Um, I think if they they just need to keep getting exposed to it. Um, then I, I think things things will can only change for the better there. But I, I also know that we won't see an end to clickbait, quick fix, silver bullet kind of yeah. things because people want that. And um, I think you have to realize that that's a that's a, that's like a transitory market. The, the people who are are going for the quick fixes only could do that so many times before they go. This is still not working. I need to try something else, mm-hmm. or they give up. Yeah. So it's important for us in the fitness community who do care about ethics and who do care about the truth and actually helping people to make ourselves available to the people who are coming off of that hamster wheel of, of lack of success of trying all the quick fixes, of you know watching all the the, the BS and listening and reading it to then going, right, okay, now that you're serious, I'm gonna take you, and I'll give you, give you actually useful information. So I think um, being compassionate, open, and understanding that people who have come from that kind of rigmarole are gonna have a lot of jacked up pre-misconceptions and, and ideas that are incorrect, and to try to not be condescending to them, to be approachable, uh, to be understanding, uh, I think that that's important. Because if you are just in, in a complete asshole, and you just look down on everyone who, who doesn't get it, um, you're probably turning off a lot of people and making them feel dumb when they're already not succeeding, you know, so they don't need that double whammy. Um, the other thing I was going to ask you is, like, what's the one question that you get a lot? Like, it's repeated every year, every week, every month, and you're just like, how do these people not know what I've been, like, talking about it, writing about it? And I'm kind of curious in your opinion, why that question is always brought up, if there is one? Oh, man, I wish there was just one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, no, I I get everything from, you know, protein intake to meal frequency to, uh, how, like, volume, like the single set versus multiple set. I mean, this, the same stuff uh, recycled endlessly. And then, and then there's, there's, like, seasons of things where people – kind of get it, but then they get stuck on the application. Like, so, okay, so progressive overload is important, so I have to add weight to the bar every time I step in the gym. Well, no, like, you know, so yeah. uh, it's, I think there, there isn't one question. I wish I, wish I could say that there, there was. Um, 
And this is something I actually struggle with as a content producer because I am a I'm a creative person, so there's a little bit of an artist in me. So like I like to make things that have that aren't just pragmatically useful to people listening, but I also like to make things that um, are creatively interesting to me. So making a, a tenth video about protein intake would probably be very useful because every year I'm in the sport is another full year of people who are getting newly exposed to my information. You know, there's people who just started lifting weights yesterday, right? Um, and they might not go back to some video I made in 2013 and on my YouTube channel because that's just not what people do. Yeah. Um, so maybe it would be useful for me to restate some of the basics on a regular basis, um, but it's really not intellectually stimulating for me to do that. You know, I want to talk about the, the, the thing that's been on my mind lately, the cutting edge research or new understanding of fun, fundamental principles or uh, new ways to think about learning or coaching or psychology. So I have to remind myself that I have to find a balance between enjoying what I do, but also serving the people who I've been trying to help. Yeah. So I do have to go back and, and do things like that. Or I think going on a lot of podcasts of very various different audiences is also helpful because I get asked questions that are um, ones that I've been asked for, for, for years and years and years. And I'm fine with that, mm-hmm. especially in a conversation. Um, but it's, it's difficult to make myself write an article about protein these days. <laughs> yeah. I, I did a hundred of those in 2012, you know? So it's, uh, it's, it, that's definitely a constant struggle. Gotcha. Now to like flip the question, what's the one question you wish people asked you that like, you know, if you're writing a blog post or if you're speaking at an event and you know, you're finished and you're, and you're like, Hey, is there any questions? And you're just like hoping for that one person to like ask you this one thing that you're really excited about. What would it be? Yeah, I think questions around uh, longevity from bodybuilders are often, they never come until the person's already like kind of screwed. Like I'll get, you'll get like a master's one or master's two competitor who goes, you know, like I can't squat anymore these days because my hips and my back are all jacked up. uh, So what can I do? And I'm kind of, I wonder if, if when they didn't have to, were they thinking about that back in the day? And, And this is something I've thought about more is, I actually got hip surgery back in uh, February of last year, just about a year ago, um, which is a really good thing for me because now I can actually squat again. But when you go through something like that, it really puts things in perspective. Like it's so easy to focus on the here and now, the current mesocycle of training, uh, the current way I train and just getting stronger. And, you know, I can sort out my technical errors later or I can deal with that. I'll just foam roll that that nagging IT band pain I have and not worry about why do I constantly get that, you know. But I think if, or, or like we are talking about with nutrition, I, I will keep following the super, super rigid diet and tracking every macro that goes across my plate uh, and annoying my wife because it's what I have to do as a bodybuilder and instead of actually thinking about, is this necessary? What's the underlying you know, emotional cause to this? Do I need to be doing this? Is there a better way that would make me happier in the long term? Is this going to burn me out of the sport, et cetera, et cetera? So I think if if people would ask more questions about, hey, what's what's the key to success to be have a bodybuilding career? Not how do I get my pro card, but how do I make sure that I'm actually at my peak in my 40s, not talking about how I used to compete 10 years ago? You know, I, I think more questions like that would, would, would really make me happy. Like, how do I how do I optimize my career versus uh, the current next short-term goal I have just ahead of me? Gotcha. Now, one of two last questions, because we're running up to an hour here, but 
I like told myself I would uh, ask all my guests this, but I keep forgetting. But uh, what would your spirit animal be and why? Spirit animal. That's a it's a great question. Um, I have no idea, and that's definitely caught me off guard. Maybe like something that flies, because that would be amazing. Yeah. Something that sees really far, which because I think that's cool too. So maybe like a hawk. There you go. Cool. All right. Yeah. You're good with a hawk. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so now, very last question. Where can people find you online? What projects do you have coming up? And anything you want to plug away on my show, you can right now. Well, thank you. Yeah. All right. So now, now it's the self, self-pimp self out hour. So yeah. um, best place to find um, my and our stuff is 3dmusclejourney.com, uh, which is the home of 3D Muscle Journey. Uh, you can find links to uh, the Muscle and Strength Pyramids books, which I've written. Uh, you can find links to monthly applications in Strength Sport, which is a monthly research review for physique and, and muscular and strength development uh, with myself, Greg Knuckles, and Mike Zerdos. You can sign up for that there if you really want to nerd out. Uh, you can also find links to our YouTube channel. Our blog is there. Uh, the 3DMJ Vault is there, which is kind of like our online campus for, for students of the sports of bodybuilding and powerlifting. You want to learn more about that. And then uh, I'm probably most active on Instagram. So you can follow me at Helms3DMJ. And I will have all those links available in my bio. And I post daily about stuff that I think is useful and helpful to the community I serve. So that's, that's probably the best way to find me. As far as what projects I'm working on, we've got second edition of the Muscle and Strength Pyramids. Um, we've, we've got the year anniversary of Mass coming out. So we're going to have a cool promotion around that. If you, wanna, if you haven't signed up for it yet, you can get a good deal there when that happens. Um, and then big things are in the works for both Gravitas and FitGenie, which are apps to track both your nutrition and training, which I've got a hand in, which I think will be really helpful to the community. So just keep an eye out for all of that. Awesome. So thank you so much for your time. This was amazing. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right, so that's going to wrap up episode 114 with Eric Helms. Hopefully you enjoyed my awesome screw-up in the intro. And it's been so long since I haven't screwed up an intro and you know mumble over my own words and i have this thing where i'm thinking about what i what the sentence is supposed to be and i just like go too fast with my mouth and weird things come out when i try to speak um so hopefully for those who signed up for my six-week nutrition course that is going on right now for those who missed out i am sorry maybe next year if i throw something together but if you have any questions, feedbacks, thoughts, concerns, feel free to reach out. And please, please, please share this podcast with your friends and family on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, Snapchat, Twitter, whatever the hell you're on. Share it, share it, share it. Let's grow this thing together. And I'll keep giving you amazing information week in and week out. And that's it for me, you guys. 